Okay. Here we go. Yeah, no, we can start with some a little bit of friendly banter to check. Okay. In. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Oh. Yeah. No. No. We are recording, but this is timely because Aaron just tested positive for COVID. Yeah. That is, is today's <laughs> moment. Here she Hi, is. Aaron. I'm so sorry. Welcome back to Professional Development, uh, the podcast where teachers talk about teaching. We are back after a long hiatus. Uh, my name is Jim Maris, and I teach 11th grade English in Boston, Massachusetts. My name is Marcus Luther, and I teach uh, high school English in uh, Kaiser, Oregon. And uh, I thought we just had a great conversation, Marcus. This was cool to reconnect. I think we've been, Brandon had a baby. I just got married. We've been busy with the holidays and there is also a pandemic that's going on. So we've been a little bit disconnected uh, for the past few months, but it's been really cool to connect before we get back from break. Yeah. And especially, I think the conversation today that we had, uh, not just in really like kind of reconciling the first semester, but mainly this notion of loving your job and what it means to love your job and how that impacts what it means to be a teacher for both of us. I think we both got to some interesting places in our own reflections, uh, discuss the positives and downsides of that, how to draw boundaries, and then ended with some advice towards new teachers who might be listening to this conversation a bit overwhelmed, especially in this current moment. So we hit on a lot of points that I'm really uh, grateful for, and I think is worth listening to. Yeah, so uh, if you're a teacher out there, we wish you the best of luck as you return from the holidays. Um, I know that there's a lot of uncertainty that's coming up with Omicron coming out. And um, we just, you know, I just want to say, I'm sure Marcus, you'd echo this, like, take care of yourselves, stay healthy, stay positive. Um, this is a hard time to be a teacher. And we, we're trying to offer a little bit of encouragement and solidarity as we move into the new year. 100%. So take care of yourselves. Happy 2022 and enjoy the podcast. Thanks, guys. Aaron just okay. tested positive for COVID, everybody. So I'm going to go back to school tomorrow. So far, my COVID test is negative, and uh, what a time to be alive. Marcus, how the hell are you? <laughs> uh, doing well. Uh, it's uh, Holidays have been a, a lot of uh, time with the little guy, uh, yeah. and I appreciate it, but it is draining in a whole different way. Yeah. Uh, holidays are different when you have kids, uh, but I'm really excited to go back tomorrow, but I'm not really sure what tomorrow is going to look like. And we haven't really received a lot of communication. So uh, I'm kind of buckling up for a January. That's going to be really, uh, it's going to be a roller coaster. But yeah. This whole year has been a roller coaster too. So yeah. I don't know, like, where are you at right now? Like, where are you like mindset wise? Uh, I, well, I'm, 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 I'm a little frazzled because Aaron just tested pot, like literally within the past 10 minutes, she just tested positive on an antigen test. Uh, my antigen was negative. So I am going to go back to school tomorrow. Um, but I expect to be testing positive for COVID any day now, <laughs> which is a, a little scary, but I guess, I mean, I don't like want COVID, but I, I've been expecting it. I'm definitely much more concerned about Aaron uh, than I am for myself. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's like top of mind for me, for sure. Little, little strange. I mean, but the big news in case anyone wasn't aware who listened to the podcast, I got married on December 10th and uh, that was, it was an incredible day. I'm sure, you know, you're a married man, you know what that day is yeah. like. So uh, it was, it was like this, it was, it was, it was a full-time job, a second yeah. full-time job wedding planning, especially down to the, to the crunch time. And then Aaron, um, I mean, Aaron did significantly more work than me, which I feel bad about. Um, 
but you know, teaching is a hard job. You come home at the end of the day. It's very hard to be to be wedding planning. Like, yeah, part-time. you don't get to use you don't get to use teaching uh, as a justification <laughs> for unequal contributions there, especially That's considering a, yeah uh, what all that Aaron does. So I just, I don't want to let you off the hook on that. Uh, no, you're right. You're right. Before we move forward, like, what's one underrated subtle thing that you appreciated in the experience that was this incredible moment in your life? Like what's a snapshot of an underrated thing? Ooh, I love, um, snapshot of under, okay. Underrated thing. Um, the venue that we got married at, they had, uh, grilled cheese. And this is like, we didn't set them up for this, but they had these grilled cheese and tomato soup shooters. So it was these like little shot glasses that were not shot glasses, but like little glasses that were filled uh, with tomato soup and they had grilled cheese as an hors d'oeuvre and it was incredible and it's funny because one thing like uh, as kind of like a joke and a tradition Aaron and I on Valentine's Day we do grilled cheese and tomato soup together so we didn't like plan that but it was uh, it was it was really cool and then of course you mean the the big moments of the day were you know more than <laughs> blew me away it blew me away and another thing that was really cool um, that I was underrated probably and, and excited about actually two things. One was my dad was there to help me get ready and get dressed and get into the tuxedo, which is really meaningful. And uh, another quick story was that I um, wasn't sure I was, I wore a tuxedo and I wasn't really sure leading up to the wedding about uh, the color of the pocket square that I wanted to do. And then in all the, in all the like chaos of the wedding, I didn't, uh actually order one so it was like the day of or the day before the wedding I realized like oh my gosh I don't actually have a pocket square for my tux and I I wanted to have like a a, like a classic white pocket square but I just had forgotten about it and didn't order it and uh kind of at the last minute somewhat serendipitously Aaron's I was texting about it with Aaron like what what should I do and um it turns out her late grandfather collected a lot of handkerchiefs and he, they had this extra white linen pocket square from his collection um, that I ended up wearing the day of. And it was, that was really special and meaningful. That is quite a story. I appreciate you sharing (laughs) it. Uh, It reminds me of a little bit to the degree uh, you've watched the West wing many times over, right? Oh yeah. yeah, the cut the tie before the debate last yep. minute, like the tie yep. replacement. Uh, yep. It's kind of meaningful. Also, like some of the, what was it? One of the TV shows where like they could like cut, mess up with the person's hair before it. I think that's yeah. like how I met your mother. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, all the different sitcoms and classic yeah, yeah. shows. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, let's, I guess I don't want to get lost too much in looking backwards, even though I think yeah. there's virtue in it, because yeah. I think there's a lot for us to talk about with uh, loving our job. Uh, transitioning mm-hmm. from marriage seems like a natural uh, segue. But if you were going to say the story of your first semester this year, since it's been a while since we've talked, in one sentence, what would that story be? Story of my first um still adapting okay. that's it two words that's that's it okay a fragment i, I would yeah. mark that down fragment doesn't have uh, do i get do i for... get 70 percent credit for that no but i did just see okay so this is completely english teacher nerd them uh, uh a new strategy for when you're giving google doc comments you create uh-huh. a code of uh find and replace and build it into your google suite so when you type like you click on something and you start typing fragment, it actually has the full sentence of feedback. So you don't just have to write fragment. It'll just automatically oh, yeah. put in. So like if you actually do the front end work, which I still need to do, yeah. it can be a lot easier on giving uh, all, because you think about the number of Google doc comments I've given over the years. Yeah. Uh, for me, this, yeah, for me, the story would be uh, like backseat humbling because I spent a good proportion of this first semester with a student teacher, uh, just thriving at the front of the room. And there's, you see a lot of different things from that vantage point. You have different discussions and, uh, it was really humbling. I think good to push back a little bit on this, like, 
like this narrative we lock ourselves into, like, like I'm the only person who can thrive in this spot in my classroom. And I don't think that's, I think sometimes that's built out of ego. And I think it can be a counter uh, productive way of seeing. So I just really learned a lot this year and year 10 that I've never had the opportunity to. So I'm really grateful for my student teacher uh, for everything she did to make that a positive experience. Cause it's not always the case. And, yeah. uh, but now I'm really excited because it was a first semester student teaching. So it's like next semester, it's, it's all me. So yeah, uh, I'm excited to take those learnings and put them into action going forward. Yeah. I like, I, uh, actually, I didn't know that you had a student teacher this year. I, as, for me, it wasn't a student teacher, but I am working with a new teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he did teach, uh, this is a shout out to Josh. I don't think he would ever listen to it, but, um, his first year as an associate teacher with our school was last year on like completely on zoom. Right. So he, he did learn like the ins and outs of curriculum planning. Um, but this is definitely his first year, like lead teaching with students. And obviously that's like a whole different ball game. And so he's teaching AP Lang. Um, and he's not a student teacher. Like I'm not really observing him much or I, I sometimes do, but I don't observe him very much. Uh, but we co-plan and I'm giving him pointers and advice. And um, that's been really cool to kind of mentor him a little bit and, and sort of see him develop and see him grow and watch him become a lot more confident in the AP land curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also I'm, I don't know if uh, you know this, I'm teaching AP seminar again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love that, but it's a little bit of dusting off uh dusting off the old cobwebs uh, and, and kind of getting back into the timing. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. So it sounds like we both have some parallel experiences this year. And uh, I think we've talked about it in previous podcasts where uh, the, the classroom can be a little bit of an island where you don't get other vantage points. Uh, and I think the ability to see other teachers, either in your own classroom, in my case, or in other classrooms, in your case, is really important. Uh, yeah. And especially the later you get in your career. Uh, but I guess I'm guessing for both of us, then we've had a lot of conversations about how to approach the role of teaching itself with newer teachers, whether with Keely in my case, so shout out to her or uh, Josh with you. And that brings up this podcast that we listened to recently, both of us, uh, just like this concept of loving your job and kind of unpacking what that means and the obligations that come with it and the slippery slopes that come with it. So I don't know. I just want to kind of tee you up where, what got you interested about that and why were you so motivated to talk about it on this platform? Uh, yeah. So if people um, are unfamiliar. There's a, it was on Vox, right? It was, okay. it was on Ezra Klein podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah he, okay. He left Vox, Vox. Okay. Yeah. Um, Ezra Klein the Ezra Klein show, there was a long form interview uh, with a labor journalist, and essentially um, she was talking about the overall concept of work, right? And like, I think with COVID and remote work, the, the fundamental idea of work in American life is really not being challenged entirely, but it's certainly changing. Um, and so Aaron and I were traveling back and forth to Cleveland and, and we had a long car rides ahead of us. And so, um, Aaron, Aaron was like, I think you would like this interview. I listened to it on my way out. And I, and I did because essentially the long and short, the, the overall thesis that was fascinating to me and like was, I think, a pretty healthy challenge for me was she basically was like, don't love your job because your job's not going to love you back. Right. And I think so much about teaching Like I am still in the classroom because I love teaching and I enter, I got into teaching out. I do think I got into teaching out of this sense of it is a calling and it is something that you're passionate about and it is more than a job. Um, And I definitely still feel that way. And I still feel that like, I think the majority of that labor argument is geared I think probably towards people who live a corporate who have like a corporate job or maybe a factory job or some sort of very utilitarian transactional nature of like I'm going to sell you 40 hours a week for 75,000 bucks a year and in that scenario I agree with the thesis like don't love your job it's not going to love you back but I have students 
former students posting on my Facebook, congratulations about getting married. And I get calls. I've gotten a call from students who are serving overseas when they're up late at night in the Middle East. Like, I don't know, man, sometimes the job does love you back. <laughs> um, yeah. And so it was a very, um, but I think for me, it, it got me thinking about, you know, everyone should, should be thinking about what is a healthy boundary, right? Like what are the priority? How do you set boundaries? I don't do, I, you know, this is, this is sort of um, a privilege I think that I get to enjoy because I've been teaching for a long time. I, I 100% refuse to do work on the weekends. Like I will not open up work. I do not do any grading every like, and I also basically don't stay more than like an hour after school. Like if I cannot get it done in those hours, it's not a priority. It's not going to have a tangible impact on the school uh, on the school day for me or for my students. And I'm going to be a better teacher because I am happy and read my books and worked out and got to bed on time and shit like that. So. Yeah. Let's, let's dive right into that because I'm different. I spend, I don't have, you know, you have that extra hour built into your contract. Am I correct? Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah we go to four. So I typically spend about maybe like an hour somewhere in the day extra beyond the contract on average. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, don't have a built in my contract. It's usually like after Simon's bedtime or like getting to school about yeah. half an hour early, something like that. But uh, like we kind of approach it differently, but I'm also at a point in my career where I have zero qualms with someone drawing the line that you're drawing. I think that at the end of the day, it is such a slippery slope beyond that line. But I also, I guess I would like to take you back to like when you started teaching, like with Teach for America, which, uh, and I think, the advice that I was given that I've given to others and still give to others at times and probably that you've given or received was that you make up for your inexperience by putting in the extra hours to take like, right. We worked yeah. ridiculous hours in those yeah. early years. Is that correct? Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. So is that right? No, I, I don't okay. think so. I don't think, I mean, look, I think, okay. I think if you're 20 something, and you are brand new to teaching and you are are willing and able and in terms of your lifestyle like you don't mind because you want to be a teacher you want to put in some hours on the weekend or do some grading at home right like I think that's fine early on but I just I really firmly believe that the the most significant I'm not saying the only way but like the most significant way for a teacher to have like the type of impact that I think people are sort of wanting and I even in some cases idolizing from like what it means to be this amazing teacher that comes from only one thing in my mind and that's longevity right like the 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 way that you have that impact is by being in the classroom for a long time And if we cannot incentivize that at a school level or even like, you know, a societal level, which clearly we're not because so many people are leaving before their third, fourth, fifth year in the classroom. And that's not just these pre-service teacher programs like Teach for America, which has a lot of criticisms that are completely justified, right? But like every teacher program that I, a preparation program that I know of, like is has very low numbers in terms of seeing its people stay in the classroom um, beyond five years. And I, I would love to see other data. I'm sure there are really much more successful programs that are out there, but like not many teachers stay in the classroom for five years, period. And, and I think that's the biggest problem that the whole profession is facing. And it's very, it's, to me, that's it, right? And so if, you, if you're not allowing people to live a life that is sustainable and allows them to pursue their own interests and not get burnt out and not feel completely overwhelmed and tired and resentful, like there's no, I, I realized early on in, in my second year of teaching that if I wanted to stay in the classroom, which I did, I needed to completely change. Mm-hmm. And so I started setting firmer boundaries and uh, very like was hi Maya. We have some barking dogs. So yeah, I mean I think like I've I've joked around a lot before that 
um, the reason I stayed in the classroom was because I'm actually not a type A person. Like a lot of teachers are about being type A and like hyper organized. And I am very organized. My dogs are barking. Sorry. Yeah, it's OK. Um, set, set boundaries, Jimmy. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think and I I'm not saying that my way is the only way by any means, but um, I just want to advocate for teachers setting boundaries and feeling uh, very empowered to do their own thing, like play guitar or be healthy or like you should have you should have a full life outside of school. And that to me, that's a critical part of staying in the classroom for a long time, which has to happen, has to happen. And we're not there yet. Yeah. And I'll put a pin in my own uh, soapbox about the teacher shortage and how we've created that in this moment. Uh, And I'll come back to it probably. Maybe I shouldn't. Uh, But I want to agree with the point about longevity because I think that's underrated uh, in a lot of these conversations and not just in our background with Teach for America, though want to note that we're both now in our second decade of teaching coming through that program. Uh, But uh, I think, I guess an interesting thing about what you said is I think the work you do outside of school gets really blurred as a teacher, especially even like as an English teacher between like your own, like intellectual pursuit and stuff you enjoy. Cause yes, Mm -hmm. there is the, Oh, I have this stack of assignments to do. Uh, that I need to do. But there's also like last night I sat down and reread the introduction of King Lear because in right. February we're going to King Lear again. Right. And yeah, that is prepping for King Lear. But like I don't necessarily see that as like a painful enterprise for me to read Shakespeare or like I have like right here I close read Ozymandias to get ready for this week's lesson. Yeah. I enjoy that. I, I genuinely enjoy that. And honestly, from like a nerd perspective, might do that even if I wasn't a teacher. Uh, So I I guess that's where the separation is. But then I go back to that question of labor of love. And is there a difference between extra time that you put into your job beyond where you're contractually paid for with something you choose and, and you love to do versus that like survival time or in our early years? Because uh, I do want, I don't want to leave that time alone because I think that's the conversation we've been having with our role of supporting other new teachers recently. Yeah. And I'm not necessarily sure I see eye to eye with you in the sense that I don't regret a single minute of that extra time that made me a better teacher, even though I don't think that's sustainable or healthy. I don't know. I, I, maybe that's a problematic relationship with my own past. Why don't you think it's, wait, what is it that you don't think is healthy? The reading on your own so, so separate the two things. Sorry. I don't regret the extraneous hours I put in early in my teaching career. Oh, yeah. Because I think that that was necessary to be a successful-ish teacher in my early years. I don't think it's possible to step into the classroom as a new teacher in the way our current system is designed and supported on average, and I'd say like by and large, without giving ridiculous amounts of your time and self to the job. I think it's almost impossible in terms of everything I've seen in my years of teaching to be successful in that role early on without really going above and beyond the job is requirements contractually. I totally agree. I don't think that's healthy, but I also don't regret it because I really value like the relationships I built, the reputation, the identity I built in my early years as a teacher, feeling pretty good about those early years of teaching. Not that I've obviously like all of us have tried to grow and expand from there. So that's where I guess there's a contradiction I, in my own, like seeing that I don't think that's healthy systemically, mm-hmm. yeah. but I really don't regret it. I don't, I don't regret it either. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't regret it either. I'm just, I just think that um, what I'm, and I, and I agree with you that like you essentially, like if you want to be a teacher and you are coming out of a, out of college or preparation program, like, Yeah you're going to have to work a lot more than me (laughs) because I'm able, I, with a very large sort of set of experiences to pull from and make decisions on the decisions that I make right now, they happen a lot faster. And I'm much more confident in them because I can pull from these sort of experiences. Right. But like I, what my, the reason I said, no, it's not healthy. Like I'm advocating, I'm advocating for, a much 
more thoughtful and principled systemic change in the way that we put teachers into the profession. Like it actually should be, um, I, I want to say like a residency program, like medical school, but like also mm. the, the doctors and stuff that I know, like that's incredibly unhealthy too. Like if, you know, I, I would say, actually, I think that my school, the model that my charter school in Boston is trying to do, we do have a, an in-house residency program where you have um, the thinking behind it is you come in, you have a very small load. It's mostly observations. You take over like small parts of it for one year. And then gradually, it's like a gradual release of control. But in practicality, I think all schools are struggling. Like what ends up happening is they become substitutes. Like they're covering for, they're covering for people constantly. And I think that most people in the AT program at Brook that I've talked to, and I'm not like, trying to completely throw I, I think it's a good idea I think the AT program is is a really mm-hmm. good idea and should work really well but I guess I just have heard that it's not working like as well as I think people want it to work because the amount of time the overall the amount of coverage that ATs have had to do at least since I've been there and this is probably way exasperated with COVID um, it's just like a lot more yeah I don't know it's it, there's just this quite I get part of this is like this general shortage of teachers. And I think yeah. that is where we're heading. It's going to get worse by all indications across the board. It's not a regional thing. Uh, and that's something we've created uh, in terms of our policy choices. I mean, just to mini rant this, like when you and I started teaching like 2011, 2012, the most the thing on this, the word on the street was we got to get rid of all the bad teachers. We got to sweep yeah. them out of the classrooms and teach for America is part of this yeah. conversation in terms and of it that enabled. And uh, <laughs> it was very much, it was the observations rubrics, uh, Charlotte Danielson, right? Uh, it was just the, it was the end thing that we, to make education better, we have to improve the quality of teachers and that needs means getting rid of the bad ones, and improving the other ones. And I am open to the conversation about improving teacher quality. I will have that conversation, but yeah. the basic premise there by these like economists and everything who are worried about like, you know, worker output from education yeah. was that assuming supply and like supply demands a pretty basic thing that I think you and I understand being English teachers even mm-hmm. is that if you don't have the supply and you start kicking people out you create this massive shortage and that's essentially what we made the job harder without adding incentives we made the culture around teaching worse we pushed people out Mm -hmm. without any way of solving the broader thing of getting more people back into the profession and that created a chasm that we are feeling right now in this moment and it's going to hurt students and no one's going to hold the people accountable who created that chasm in terms of policy uh, in the first place. That's my like mini rant done. Yeah, but, it's like, a good rant. Very frustrated. I've been saying that for 10 years. I'm not, I told you so person, but I was saying that 10 years ago. Uh, it's a great rant. And I think uh, I'm sure there's at least a couple books out there that, that support that claim. Do you remember, here's a question for you. Do you remember where that messaging came from like can you recall any because I remember thinking that right like I I, it was a long time ago I remember thinking and having that mindset of like we got to get rid of the bad teachers and there definitely kind of was a narrative of like oh this is what bad teaching looks like and this is like where it comes from when where we were in Arkansas and in the Delta like I think that at least at least Teach for America and the people that I was working with were telling a different story of actually it's purely about the teacher shortage, approach your community with humility, like you're there to help your, like your additional people. But I mean, I, I, so if you're in a community like the Delta, right, I think that's different. I, I then coming in, I know that Teach for America has had conflicts with other major urban areas like Nashville and Seattle and things like that, where there has been like a conflict of, okay, well, we're going to put these 20, 22 year olds and we're going to, we're going to push out like the jaded sort of veteran union people who are sitting on these pension contracts. 
And I, I know that that kind of thinking and sort of stereotype exists, but I can't, I don't have any vivid personal recollections of things that made me think that. And I just kind of wonder if you do or where that kind of came from. Well, I mean, like, I'll just like the, the image that is in my mind was the time cover of Michelle Re holding a broom. Oh yeah. Title, yeah, yeah. How to fix America's schools. Uh, <laughs> subtitle, her battle against bad teachers has earned her admirers and enemies. And Michelle Ree is yeah, very much a Teach for America product. Uh-huh. She is still a teacher. Like she was featured as a speaker at the 25th anniversary. Teach for America has not distanced herself from her messaging. So like mm-hmm. there is that corollary that's very much. And then you think about all like the different programs about like increasing incentives for teacher observations and like what's all of that entire right. idea of you know, bloomboard.edu, like all these different programs and applications and tech tools to monitor teachers, to hold them right. accountable. And again, I am not the anti-accountability person. I, I, I believe in putting accountability on teachers, but this messaging is for 10 years been building. And I, I am all about doing all those things. If you add incentives and start bringing in a supply where every time you post a job, you have a hundred applicants and -hmm. teaching is this crown jewel profession in our country, but it's not. And you can act like it is in terms of the punitive aspect without Mm -hmm. creating incentives to make it the medical profession, the law profession, like it is in some other countries in some ways. So uh, again, this is a problem of our own creation. It is a policy choice. It is a priority choice. Mm -hmm. And if we act like it's an accident and just happened, that's short-sighted and it doesn't allow us to hold people accountable for the situation we're in right now. Again, a lot of emotions here, but I just curious because people act like we are where we are by happenstance and Mm -hmm. we created this path. We chose to embark upon it and now we are reaping the consequences. Yeah. My take, I, I agree. My take on this is like, I have absolutely no faith at all in any type of educational policy, right? Like I have no faith in any elected leader. I think Michelle Wu in Boston is cool. She seems like a great mayor. And I have basically no, I like I have, I have the Trump administration, Michelle Wu's administration, like I, there's, for me, there's an incredible disconnect between any elected leader and the mechanical like happenings on the ground. And I think like, I understand with the Bush administration signing Nickelby into law, that sort of ushered in an era of like hyper accountability, but like, and it it did, I'm not saying it didn't change the game. And like the Obama administration had race to the top, which was really destructive. And, but I think like day to day, the reality is I think the largest impact that anyone could make on an education system is in hiring. Like, are you, are you going to hire the right people? Because there's only, if you take a look at the overall percentage of a teacher's time that you are managing or observing or whatever it is, like it's a very small amount. And a teacher's in the classroom for 180 days and 130 of those days at a minimum are completely unobserved. And And most schools way more than that, but yeah. 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 And it's just like, no, the only, the only impact that any type of policymaker can have on education is in the entry point into the classroom. Um, Are you going to incentivize that to get the right people in? Are you going to give people the, and I would say the flip side of this, my other, like my rant is, is instructional time to planning time. Like, yeah, if you are, if, if my goalpost is one-to-one instructional to planning time, and that's, I've believed that for a long time, I don't really ever believe we're going to get there at all, ever, but like, that is the structural change that, that needs to happen if we want to like see teaching be what it can be for students is to trust, to trust teachers more, right? And like, I think the flip side of accountability is a lack of trust, Right. How do you create a system of accountability that does message at the end of the day, you are the teacher and I trust Mm -hmm. I as a leader, as a principal, superintendent, or even like a district level person, how do you message that you are trusting the instructional people 
to go in day to day and do their jobs without being monitored? I think that's the real question. Yeah. Well, I have two things I want to flip back to that. I think they circled this back to this idea of loving your job. So are you okay putting on the administrator hat and be the hiring person? Okay. Because I'm really, I was thinking about this the other day and I think this question says a lot Uh, and I don't know what your answer is going to be. So I'm curious. So let's say you're hiring for a position. You have two applicants you're deciding between and you are right that policy preferences and such can create an applicant pool that's 20 to 30 people. And that's a better situation for kids, but that's not usually where we are right now. So You've got two people you're choosing between. One is a eight to 10 year veteran who's very much comes in with qualifications, sees their job as a professional. They're very clear about they will not work outside of their contract hours. Uh, you ask them, you know, do you love teaching? Like, oh yeah, I, you know, I feel like it's just like any other job. I do it well. They're pretty matter of fact about it. Uh, they have very good qualifications, but they don't express that like deeper passion and joy. Uh, the other person, newer teacher, maybe maybe not brand new, but pretty early in their career, super passionate. You can tell that they are going to go above and beyond. They're going to put in the extra hours without any questions. They're super passionate about their job. Not as qualified, not as much experience, but super genuinely bought in culture and value wise. Who do you hire? The veteran. Okay. Talk about why. Because I know people who would completely disagree with that. Yeah. I. Why, if you have been in the classroom for eight to 10 years, why do you have to convince anyone of your passion for the job? You've been doing it for eight years. I, I, that's me. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like, I don't need to convince, and and I, I feel very lucky. I do think I have a principal who, who trusts me a lot and, and, but she doesn't expect me to convince her of my passion and she she respects my boundaries one time one time she sent me she sent an email changing the location of the meeting at the room uh like we had a morning meeting and she sent an email at like 6 45 and she said sorry guys the meeting's going to change the 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 meeting location is going to change i didn't get the email because i don't check my email before school and i made a joke i made a joke i wasn't trying to like snub her or anything but I made a joke. I was like, oh, I only read work emails at work. And she overheard that. And then she apologized to me. She was like, I'm sorry. I don't, I'm tr- not trying to like overstep your boundaries or anything. And I was like, no, it's, it's totally fine. I'm joking around. I, I didn't mean to be rude. Like it is actually an expectation from the school that the school set that we do read a morning email before we get to work every day. Cause it has critical announcements and stuff. And Honestly, most days I do still read that email, even though I'm not at school yet. Right. So like, um, I just, I, I'm not, and, and the value that you get with the skill set of eight to 10 years of teaching, if, if that veteran teacher can convince you that like, cause there are like, there are like older veteran teachers who are what I would consider, like, I'm not just, I'm not like discounting the people who are just like sort of checked out and like I know that that happens I've seen it happen and and I don't think that you should do that but like if they approach their job because that veteran that you described is me right and like I was not trying to like put you in no, that bubble. I was that was what I was thinking of before we had this yeah, conversation no it's a good I think it's a really good question because a this I have a very precise vision for how AP Lang should look like every single day of the year. I don't have it like written down in a whole lot of detail because we've been in the middle of a pandemic, but like, I know with a high level of confidence, the eight different cycles that you need to get through leading up until the AP test. And I am very precise about that. The same thing is true at AP seminar. And that is what you, that type of vision and precision is what I think you should be looking for as an administrator or looking for as a hiring manager. And as long as the person is going to show up to work on time and be a thoughtful, caring, kind, compassionate person who, yeah, I probably would want, like I show up to my kids' plays and extracurricular activities and things like that. Like you should hire the veteran because 
they're going to go home and they're going to cook dinner and they're going to be with their families and be happy. And I would much rather, I would much rather have someone work for me for 40 hours a week for 25 years than 80 hours a week for three years. Yeah. I, I agree with this. I I've talked to admin about this uh, and I don't have a strong perspective uh, as you do, because I, I guess my hypothesis is that the current education system does not allow a lot of teachers and especially this last two years is born that out with like pandemic and what's been asked to do your job well mm-hmm. in the constraints of the job contractually i think for a lot of teachers yeah. you have to be willing to make the adjustments make the pivots go above and beyond so mm-hmm. i understand why an administrator would look at a new hire and say hey gonna have to do some extra work with this person but this is a better long-term investment to our school and culture for this person versus this other person who might be come across as more cynical or detached again, not directing this at you, but terms. Yeah. Oh, I'm cynical. It's okay. Oh, okay. And (laughs) I I think this where we probably are very different. I guess my second question in a sec and probably our last question ties back to this too, but I just think it's a really important question because it goes to that idea of loving your job. And is that an asset and a value? And if, if it is an asset, then it is something that's kind of being exploited, right? Kind of yeah. as an add-on oh, yeah. to uh, as a teacher. And I understand from an administrator, I don't think this is a cynical, exploitative decision. If you're an administrator and you're thinking, who is the best person to make our school better at serving our students and families? And they're making yeah. the choices that they are making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not, again, I've had different administrators and had different conversations. This isn't about one specific situation, but I think that question kind of gets splices the issue in a way that helps us think about it more tangibly. Uh, And then here's my second question. Do you value your identity as a teacher? A hundred percent. It's very core to, I think like what I, I am like, I, 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 it's a, it's a huge part of my identity, like my own personal identity, but as I have been in the classroom longer, I, I want other parts of, like when I was first teaching, I was, I would say that the idea of being a teacher was like 85%. Like if you drew a, a pie chart of how I identified, it would be like 85% a teacher. And I think that pie chart has shrunk a little bit to include other things like um, now a husband and previously a dog owner and an amateur guitar player and writer and reader and runner. And like those things matter to my students and to my classroom because I show them pictures of my dog and I bring them in on the conversations the joking around about okay i'm getting married guys like should i wear a notch lapel or uh a peak lapel on my tuxedo for my wedding like that stuff matters a lot i believe in a lot of it more and like allowing your allowing your students to sort of see you as a whole person who has outside interest like i want them to have when they get in their career, I want them to have that kind of outside interest too. And so like, I think it's the idea that your the amount of time that you dedicate towards specific teaching tasks is when you are enacting your identity as a teacher. Like that's, that's not necessarily true to me. Mm-hmm. Like you're a father, that's core to who you are. And I'm sure that you talk about that with your students. And like, I don't know, it, like the fact that you are a teacher is enough of your identity. Like you, we don't need to like increase the, you only have 24 hours in a day. Yeah. No, I, I guess that's the, well, one, cause this collides with this idea of like our generation, newer generations and surveys bear this out. Mm-hmm. that people are looking to work as a bigger part of their identity and yeah. not just for compensation, but like who I am as a worker is a bigger part of who I am. And I want a job that doesn't just like make enough to like support my family and to get, you know, buy the things I want to buy, but also 
provides me a source of fulfillment. This goes to like Derek Thompson's like workism that was mentioned oh, yeah. in the podcast. I remember uh, that article. And this, I, and especially in a society, especially in a pandemic. I really where, like, yeah. just as a quick interjection, I really love Derek Thompson's. Oh, writing. Derek Thompson's okay. brilliant. Yeah. New podcast, by the way. Yeah. The, the <laughs> I've been loving that. Uh, yeah. But this idea that we are losing other forms of identity in our yeah. community, whether it's religious or different activities and clubs or even neighborhoods with our social isolation mm-hmm. and where we're trending. And that means we're putting more eggs in our work identity. And this is hard for me. And I, this comes all the way back to begin this conversation is that like, I love teaching just like mm-hmm. you, like, and I love that. I love teaching. I think that's quite a gift to mm-hmm. be able to go to work and earn a good living for my family. I don't complain like compensation wise. I don't complain. Like I feel really lucky to be where I am and to do the work that I do. I get joy from it. And I guess I'm trying to like pull back and think about systemically, uh, is that good to build a system in which kind of part of the compensation is in a way like, Oh, you'll love your job. You'll get to do this. And I don't think that that's how it is for everyone, but I'm just trying to grapple with, the amount I get, just like you, identity-wise from this job, I care about my identity as a teacher. I really want to build it, and I, I care about my reputation as a teacher. I want to make a positive impact. I think I'm better at like the off switch than I used to be, not as good as you are <laughs> based on this conversation, but uh, in terms of setting those boundaries. But I just think it's it's a tough question when you step back and think about the big picture and what it means to build a sustainable teaching profession, what it means to build the longevity that both you and I agree is central to making schools better at serving students and families. And I think there's a lot of contradictions and paradoxes within this conversation that I know that we haven't like figured out, mm-hmm. but it's just been in my head a lot. So I appreciate being able to like kind of reflect on them at I bare mean, minimum. You know, a couple, a couple of quick things about that. Like, when I, I have an off switch, but like, if I'm out, I, I have been running a lot more, especially since COVID. Like if I'm running by myself, I am thinking about my classroom. Like I'm thinking about the curriculum, yeah. honest to God, like that's where I, I do a lot of my best lesson planning because my mind is going, I'm active, I'm happy, I'm joyful, and I am working out. And most importantly, no one's around to bother me. <laughs> But is that is that is that healthy? Because I'm like you, yeah. I'm the so same I, way. So I think I'm, I think that is right because to me, I think that's an instance where I am not thinking about or, or the, I don't really see that necessarily as work, right? Like that really? isn't that is isn't it, is, is, the, is the work insidiously yeah capitalism's hand has snuck into your head and made you not think of what work yeah. as actual work because you totally. are exploiting yourself. Yeah. on runs that should be a different sphere of your identity to yeah. plan for your classroom. I don't know. It's a creative, like when I was in college, I ran in college and like a lot of times that's kind of when I, I'm just sort of used to thinking silently like that is like a, a very normal thing for me to like engage and not every day. Like I go for runs with other people and we chat and talk, but like a lot of times if I'm running for myself, if I'm running for myself, it's like, I'm thinking I basically am doing my long-term planning in my head and I, mm-hmm. I make some decisions and I think about all these things and I make a lot of like mental checklists and notes and like that I'm able to retain that for 24 or 48 hours. And when I get to school, I open up my computer and within 35 minutes, I can take notes about the big important decisions that I made. Right. So like that's, on, and I think teaching is a lot about decision-making. That's the hard part about being a teacher, right? So like, that's one area where I would say, yeah, like, for example, of course, like I, I do a lot of like boundary blending and stuff, but what I'm saying where boundaries is like, I'm not going to open up my email. Like I, I see emails come across my phone today. I saw mm-hmm. an email come across my phone as students like, Hey, I had an F on this assignment. And I'm wondering if you could text me about how to make up this assignment because I wasn't there. No, I'm not going to text a student that. I'm going to tell them in class on Monday, tomorrow. Yeah. If you want grit, if you want credit for the assignment, just do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm not going to like, I don't know. I, it's a very, you, you're making me think a lot here because like, yeah. 
there is a there is a part of like your identity as a teacher and your time and allocation like your mental energy that you spend beyond just like cranking away at the laptop doing your lesson planning yeah and i think especially later years where you don't have to do as much of like the easily to define like oh i'm grading this stack of papers or right. i am creating this powerpoint because i think that and again i enjoy that mental work so i think i'm less likely to name a boundary but I think our, our lived experiences are pretty similar. Like yeah. I do the, my, one of my new year's resolutions is to have uh, a non podcast run a week because that's when I do my best thinking. And yeah. sometimes the podcast is a good way to keep me from doing that, which maybe mm -hmm. is the right decision. Uh, Cause I, I, I love that thinking. I love that processing. Uh, and I also going back to that emails thing, something I've been thinking about because uh, I've been better this year uh, about like just turning off the email notifications outside of work for that sure. reason and like setting those norms with students. But one thing I do know from last year uh, is that I tried to, especially during a pandemic, I made the choice to be like, try to be like pretty responsive, like to pick moments outside of school where I would try to, if there was a quick email that I could like get an answer to a student so they would feel supported because I knew it was stressing them a question, yeah, yeah. I would try to respond, right? And that was me going above and beyond. It was outside of work at times. And I tried to be really good about my digital communication because that was the only communication they were getting the mm -hmm. entire year uh, or till the very end. What I've been thinking about now in retrospect is let's say a student's got eight teachers and two of their teachers are doing that. And the other six in their experience, when they send that email, oh, that teacher doesn't care. That teacher doesn't respond until this one, you know, their planning period the next day at work. Uh, my choice to go above and beyond harms in a way that student's relationship with that teacher. And I think that's from like a school culture and setting norms as a building is a really important thing. And I don't have an answer because I don't necessarily think I'm a bad person for sending those emails and trying to support students. It was all well-intended, but I'm trying more often. And this is where being a, having a student teacher gave me the time and space and perspective. What's the right answer for the whole school? What's the right answer for the whole system? Not just what's best for you in your classroom. Because I think sometimes those things aren't necessarily the same answer. And I'm trying yeah. to have the humility uh, going forward to at least think about those and have those conversations, which I appreciate this space for. Because yeah. it, I think the arrogance of my previous time being is that I'm going to do what's right by my kids, period. If it went in doubt, I'm going to close the door and make the choice that's best for my kids. Because when I think about the macro, I can't control it. And that's a waste of time. I'm going to focus on the micro and make a positive impact on the students who walk in my door. And I don't think that's a bad perspective, mm -hmm. but I'm also now seeing how if everyone is in their own silo making those choices, those choices aren't independent of each other and can have a harmful effect on each other. Yeah. I mean, look, we call this podcast professional development tongue in cheek to like but like, this is legitimate professional, you know, when, when it is some of the best listening to you reflect like that and talk about the ways in which you make decisions and structure your time. And like, I think that it is this, it, I don't really consider this work. I look forward to doing this. This is a sort of a passion project and a hobby yeah. of mine. And like, I think it's really cool, but there's absolutely no question that these types of conversations impact the way that I think about my classroom, impact the way that I think about my job. And, and so it's a, it's a fascinating thing because there's, there's, there's no, there is no question that I think anyone who is a teacher for any amount of time, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to sort of be able to say, oh, this is my off the clock time and you and like completely engage mentally are disengaged mentally. And I don't think necessarily that's unhealthy. Um, I think that there are a lot of other incentives. We need to re-incentivize like getting into the classroom in like radically different ways, like, like in ways that would cost the federal government like an insane amount of money. And I just, I have no hope that that's ever gonna happen, but that's what it, to me, that's what it would take. Yeah, and like in summary, I guess we've got, you know, I, I guess before we get started, real quickly, cause I think we've been really good about making this 
purposefully something that we would have wanted to listen to in our early years as mm-hmm. teachers. What, what's the takeaway for, in your perspective of this conversation, if you're a first year teacher, you're thinking of you're about to go into the classroom or you're early in your career, because I think this conversation is probably a little hard to listen to because both of us are talking about it from a place of a lot of security in who we are as teachers. Mm -hmm. And even if we're making these choices and struggling with the boundaries, we feel like we have ownership in making them. Cause I think the harder perspective is if you don't feel like you have a choice, like it's like I do this or I don't have anything to do the next day in class or I get fired or I get professionally consequenced. Uh, this is a hard conversation in my mind if you are new and struggling. So what's your advice to the new teacher who's listening to this and really yeah. kind of grappling with what we're talking about? I think that's a great question. I think my biggest piece of advice the number one thing that i would say to any teacher is to like just trust yourself trust trust yourself trust your decisions because i think there's so much about being a new teacher that is meant to communicate like oh this is the immediate thing that you need to be doing better or differently and you know, as a teacher, it's easy to kind of like walk away from your classroom and being like, oh, this kid, this is the one kid that was rude to me or said something, wasn't paying attention. And like, that's the kid that you're going to be thinking about. And you're going to be disappointed. You're going to walk away kind of feeling negatively about, but 18 other kids are working hard in your classroom and like they were doing the right thing and whatever it was, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was going to say like 38 other kids, but yeah, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Uh, okay. Yeah. Do we have different ratios here? Yeah. Um, I meant in one section, like, are you, <laughs> no, I mean, no, one, are room. you, t- do you have 39? No, not 30. Room? Sorry. In our Oregon, the, there's no cap size. Uh, oh I my have God. my highest are low thirties right now. So it's not oh. that bad, but it is. Yeah. Like nah, 180 plus on the roster. Yeah. That's hard. Uh, again, different, Oof. different podcasts. Keep going. Oof. I didn't mean to throw, I didn't mean to throw you off. Ooh. Yeah. God bless yeah, when you, you when you okay. when you assign that essay, that is a that is a <laughs> quite a thing to do. Yeah, it is. I mean, if there's 19 or there's 40 kids in your classroom, trust your. I mean, that's the, my, the point that I'm getting to is trust yourself, right? Yeah. We live in an age of hyper accountability for teachers, and like that amount of accountability and rubricing and observation and pointing out, like, okay, you're a new teacher. Yeah, you're probably not going to be that good. Like. It's fine though. It's fine. If you make a mistake and you don't have the lesson that you want to go to, did it, if the lesson didn't go the way you wanted it to go, or you're working on a specific part of like your teacher presence or your economy of language, like if you're, if you're like very discreetly trying to like improve on one skill at a time, like just give yourself grace and trust yourself. Like it does actually take time. It's okay for you to not be perfect, but you know what? you are if you if you are confident in your subject area and you have if if you really care about making sure that the kids walk away with what they're supposed to walk away with and you're trying to build positive relationships that you're doing enough like that is enough and you should trust that and allow that to sort of grow because teaching like we said over I said a little bit a while ago like teaching is about longevity, like in the long run, year over year, but also teaching is about longevity day after day and week after week. Just like be patient, trust yourself and don't allow if you, cause I have felt this way. Don't allow like a flood of critical feedback, like be the thing that is overwhelming and allowing you or not allowing you to kind of see the bigger picture because 75, 85% of your day-to-day actions and decisions are, are making a real impact. And I think my other thing on this is like, it is so critical for all administrators. If you are hiring that 20 something passionate teacher, like, and you're not holding up the mirror of the important things that they did well and telling them, these are the things that you did that were really impactful. There's this book I read a couple of years ago called Evocative Coaching, where it's like, just tell people what they're doing well. Just tell them what they're doing well and that will get them to stay. So I think that's my big thing. Trust yourself and make sure, just be patient 
and trust yourself. And I'll, I'll second that and add on, don't silo yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. Because the, I think a lot of the time uh, intensive stuff is when you're creating things that are already out there, especially even at your own school, or maybe you're a new teacher in South Central Arkansas and a second year English teacher in Northeast Arkansas sends you a whole grammar regimen of uh, <laughs> here's oh, no. how you can teach your sequence grammar throughout the year. I don't necessarily subscribe to that anymore, but it was very helpful at the time. So uh, it's like the tools are out there. And I think what did I send you that chapter of getting it right? I think it was like a whole sequence of like lessons of how you teach grammar over the course of the year by Uh, skill, which is gave me a framework. So again, this is like one email you sent that was very helpful. Uh, And so I think the tools are out there. And then my big thing that I come back to a lot is know your values and hold yourself accountable to them. Because Mm -hmm. If you are living up to whatever your values are and knowing what they are explicitly and holding yourself accountable to them, you can feel good about yourself at the end of the day. It doesn't mean everything's perfect, but there, when there is a disconnect or an, a misalignment between your values and your actions, that creates like a deeper, sometimes unspoken, uh, not, maybe not trauma is the right word, but really this, it's hard to build a foundation on that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's knowing your values is a great way to advocate for yourself, to have conversations with your administrators and colleagues. I know one of the things I'm most grateful for with my administration is that we talked about values on the very single first day that we hired. We're aligned on our values, and I really believe in the values of our team and our school. And I am incredibly grateful for that because you can have conflicts that are within people who have the same values, and you can find solutions. If your values are pretty different it's hard to find solutions so i'm really grateful to be at a place where we're on the same page values wise because uh and i think a lot of that i'm grateful for the idea of just making explicit values that a lot of times aren't spoken so mm-hmm. uh know what your values are and hold yourself accountable to them would be my last point yeah man i think that's great advice i love that it's a good place to end it marcus i know well, enjoy your, uh, yourself and you your too you too and uh Best of luck with your second semester. I'm excited to stay connected and, and see how things are rolling up because we got that AP test coming up. Oh, yeah. Well, I have lots of <laughs> thoughts on like testing itself that we're going to have yeah. to talk about. We have, yeah. we have conversations to be had, but you need to take care of yourself. Uh, you too. And best to Aaron. And uh, yeah. Good luck. Uh, man. Good luck. Happy 2022. Happy 2022.